0: Today's sermon text reading comes from John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, and can be found on page 6 of your worship bulletin. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, who he, he, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: When I was little, and I I think I've shared this story before, but when I was little, my mom would take me to the two absolute worst stores for a little boy. She would take me to Joanne Fabrics and Michael's. And to this day, I I still do not understand the difference between these two stores because in my mind, they seem to be the exact same. And yet every strip mall in America must have both of these stores. And I hated both with an equal passion. The very second that I would walk into Joanne Fabrics, my nose was filled with this combination of... Scented pine cones, fabric, yarn, Yankee candles, and I just hated the smell. And we would spend what I thought were just felt like days on end walking through Joanne Fabrics. I remember my mom saying, "But we need to make you curtains, and you need a new pillowcase." So we got these big spools of yarn, and we'd throw it out on the table. And I just always want to say, "Mom." If you really loved me I'm okay just get me out of here I don't need pillowcases mom I just want to be out of this store that smells like a girl I did not like these stores at all according to a panel at Harvard our smell is deeply connected to our emotions and memory in fact it is the strongest of the senses in terms of emotion we see here in this Account that this scene is taking place in a house that is filled with a scent. We know from the other gospel accounts that this house is the house of Simon the leper. And we see in verse 3 that Simon's entire home is filled with the smell of perfume. This would have been a, a lovely smell, hopefully somewhat better than Joanne Fabrics. This would have been a good smell. But it was also the smell that was used to overcome the stench of death, that as a body would begin to decay, this was the type of perfume that was used to anoint the body. We have now been in the gospel according to John for just about an entire year, and we are just now past the midpoint in this book. And this Sunday is going to mark a very important shift in the gospel according to John. You see that shift in verse one where it says, that we are now six days from the Passover, meaning we are nearing the end of the life of Jesus. The first half of John covered multiple years, but it is the final days that are going to fill up this final half of the book. These final days that demand the most attention. Last week when when chapter 11 ended, we were in the city of Ephraim. This was a very small city about 12 miles outside of Jerusalem. But Jesus has now gotten closer to the city and is spending the night in Bethany. Bethany is, again, another smaller town about two miles outside of Jerusalem. So Jesus is now making his way towards the city. And while Jesus is in Bethany, he is going to stop and spend the evening with his very good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are actually going to host a dinner for Jesus. And we don't know exactly why this family is hosting the meal. It could be as simple as when your friend is in town, you have your friend over for dinner. Or perhaps this was a way of keeping Jesus safe from the authorities. Again, we saw last week that Jesus is now a wanted man, that the authorities are trying to arrest him. So perhaps Mary, Martha, and Lazarus thought, well, you know, Jesus can stay with us and this would be a way of keeping him safe for the evening. But I think that they are actually hosting a deal to celebrate and thank Jesus for all that he has done. And my reason for saying that is because of what you see in verse 2, where it says they gave a dinner for him. This sounds celebratory. This sounds like this is for his honor. This is an actual dinner for Jesus. Because remember, it was not very long ago that Lazarus was in the grave. That these sisters are deeply grieved by the death of their brother, and yet Jesus comes and raises Lazarus from the ground. So this is a way of thanking Jesus. And as you might recall, this family has significant financial resources. And so again, my assumption would be that if this is a celebratory dinner for Jesus, they have bought very good food, they have bought the very best wine, they're going to throw a party because they want to honor and thank Jesus for all that he has done. And as Westerners, when we think of a formal dinner, we think of a nice long dining room table with very formal chairs surrounding the outside that would all be pointed towards the middle. And so you would sit, you know, like your, your mother taught you, you would sit very straight and you would look forward. But this is not a Western table. This is an ancient dining room. So yes, there would have been a table in the middle and the table would have had the food. But surrounding the table, there would have been couches that you would lounge in, that you would recline in while you eat dinner. So this is not, again, very like sitting in a chair. Jesus would have been lounging, meaning his feet would have been exposed at the end of the table. And so here you have Jesus. He is lounging on a couch, eating dinner. We know that this room is full of men. We know that Jesus is here, Lazarus is here. This is Simon's house. So we assume that he is in the room. We know that the disciples are also in the room. Now in the actual house, there would have been two women, but Martha is in the background. She is busy serving. And in walks Mary into this room of men. Now for any woman in any cultural period, a room full of men, is likely very intimidating, but for an ancient Middle Eastern woman, this would have been especially intimidating to walk into this room full of men. And yet, in walks Mary, and she begins to do the most remarkable thing. She begins to anoint the feet of Jesus with her hair. You see in verse 3 that Mary is using roughly one pound of ointment. The, the Jewish system did not use pounds. That's what we use in English. But when, when you do the math and do the translation work, it is roughly one pound. And it says that this ointment is very expensive, but it is just not a little expensive. This is off the charts, best of the, the best, extremely rare ointment. It was very, very pricey. This past Christmas, I bought my wife Vanessa a very little bottle of perfume from a nice store downtown. I'm amazed at how expensive this little bottle of perfume can be, but this the salesman, she's very nice, very lovely, and said, Oh, it's totally worth it. This is very rare. This is undiluted. There's very rare ingredients in, in here. Perhaps there's even... Liquid gold and the the breath of angels and things that your wife is going to love and she is going to feel like magic. And so I said, oh, yes, I should get my wife this little bottle of perfume. It's very rare. But what I bought my wife has nothing in comparison to what Mary just spent on Jesus. This perfume, this ointment is from the nard plant. The nard plant was a very rare flower that could only be found in the foothills of the Himalayas. So this plant was picked, it had to be carried out of the mountains on the back of a camel, and then would have to be transported all the way from India to Jerusalem. So this is very rare, this is very hard to find. And Mary does not just have a little bit of nard, but she has a full pound of it. We see here that it's not watered down. This is not diluted nard, but we see that she actually has pure, 100% pure organic nard. Wow, this stuff is very impressive. Judas, as you see in the text, he will estimate that this pound of nard is worth 300 denari. A denarius was one day's wage. Now, if you consider that. You would never work on the Sabbath. You wouldn't work on the day of a festival. This meant there were about 300 working days in the Jewish calendar, meaning that this pound of nard is worth one year's wage. So in our modern currency, that might be 50 to $60,000. This is unbelievably expensive. I promise you that whatever I bought Vanessa was not fifty dollars or $60,000. This is off the charts expensive. But it's not just the expense that is so shocking here. In Mark's gospel account, we see that Mary brings in this nard ointment in an alabaster jar. And Mary does not just carefully pour out a little bit, one drop at a time. It says that Mary actually smashes The jar, there's almost a little bit of a a recklessness to what Mary is doing here. And remember that this room is full of men. This is a very conservative society where women were often kept at a distance. And while Jesus is eating, Mary as a woman comes in and she lets down her hair. If you were a proper woman, you were not to let your hair down in front of men. A woman's hair was to be up. And yet she lets down her hair, and with her very own hair, she uses this very expensive ointment and begins to wash the feet of Jesus. Mary is breaking all sorts of societal boundaries here. Her heart is completely moved by who Jesus is, and she is not going to hold anything back. Here at this dinner, all Mary wants to do is honor Jesus. And of course, Judas is watching this scene unfold. And we know that Judas is going to be the one that is, just in a couple, couple days, he's going to be the one that is going to sell Jesus for a far lesser amount. Judas, all he needs is 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. Jesus, uh, 30 pieces of silver in our modern currency, that would be a few hundred dollars, not very much money. So we know that Judas is a very bad guy, and so even here, we can be a little self-righteous, and we can be a little judgmental and say, ah, here's, here's Judas, he's just being greedy, he's just being selfish, look at him, he's, he's pretending to actually care for the poor, he doesn't care for the poor, all he cares about himself and money in his very own pockets. It is very easy for us to judge Judas in this story. But let's be honest with ourselves. In this story, we are more likely to be like Judas than we are to be like Mary. Judas is holding back. Mary is all in. Now, I would not say that my family was cheap when when I was growing up, but I certainly would not say that we were an extravagant family. We were taught to to save our money, we were taught to budget, we were taught to be moderate. I was always told by my parents, buy what you need, but when you buy, don't buy the most expensive, just get something middle of the road. I was taught not to be extravagant, that the Saunders were not the type of family that would spend $50,000 on NARD. I was taught to be very conservative with our money, which as an overall family value is a wonderful thing. But what we do see here is that there are a few times when we are to break the bank. And this is one of those times. Inside of us, if we are honest, perhaps we have a little bit of Judas in us. When it it comes to matters of Jesus, we want to hold back. Financially, we, we don't want to give Jesus our full bank account. We do not want to honor Jesus with our most luxurious items. And even in our judgment, we, we can look at people, Christians like Mary. Look at her. She, she, she's a nut. She, she's breaking jars. She's breaking societal norms. She's on her knees. Her hair is down. We might say, Mary, Mary this is too much. You're being far too extreme here, Mary. You are now a religious nut. You're a fanatic. Mary, you're being too extreme. Mary, we are Presbyterians. We are proper and we are decent, dogmatic. Mary, we we like things done decently and in order here, Mary. And this is making me a little bit uncomfortable. Mary, Mary, how about before you're so rash? Why don't we do this? Let's, Let's pray about it. Let's uh, have a study committee write a paper, and then we'll check what John Calvin has to say about these sort of things, and then we'll pray a little bit more, and then maybe we'll make a wise decision on how we are to spend our money. But Mary, you're just being way too rash here, smashing jars. You're making a religious fool of yourself. You can be a little judgmental. But Mary is actually a hero. Mary does not hold back her finances. Mary does not hold back her reputation. Mary does not hold back her emotions. Mary sees Jesus as being so infinitely valuable that she is giving everything to Him, knowing that her friends are likely watching in judgment. Before I was a pastor here in Detroit, I was a pastor at Michigan State and did a number of Bible studies with football and basketball players. And there's one morning I was in the football building. It was a very cold January morning. So January is coming right off of bowl season. And I'm, I'm still not quite sure how I did this, but I got a little turned around in the football building. And I ended up in a room that I was not supposed to be in. That This was not a room for, for people like me. So I'm in this very small room. I'm, I'm kind of lost. I'm looking around. And I, I realize it's just me and the brand new Rose Bowl trophy just sitting on the shelf right there. They had just won the Rose Bowl, they were about to build the big trophy case out in the lobby, that wasn't done. So it's just me and the Rose Bowl trophy. And if you're a, a fan of Big Ten football, then it does not get any better than the Rose Bowl. You just think of all the, the practices that go into it, the sweat, the tears, waking up at 4.30 in the morning, working out until nine, 10 o'clock at night, just the injuries, the injuries that these guys go through to win the Rose Bowl, it's just, it's just crazy. It takes an all-in approach if you want to win the Rose Bowl. But if you are convinced that the Rose Bowl is worth it, then as a player, you are gladly all-in. They knew the value, of the trophy, and therefore they were willing to be all in. And that is what we see here with Mary. Mary knows that Jesus is worth it, and therefore she is all in. She just saw Jesus raise her brother from the ground. She knows the value of Jesus, and therefore she does not care what others think, but she is all in. Judas will criticize her, but Jesus affirms her. says that you are doing the right thing here, Mary, because Mary is actually preparing Jesus for his upcoming burial. Now, it does not seem likely that Mary knows what she is actually doing, but God in his wisdom is going to use her, her actions to speak beyond even Mary's intentions. This is where the timeline of the gospel according to John is is very important because in the timeline of this gospel account, we are now six days before Passover. The very next day in this account, which we'll see next week in verse 12, is the day that Jesus is going to make his entrance into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So the very next day after Mary is anointing Jesus with this very expensive perfume, Jesus is going to begin his death march into the city. So here is humble Mary now anointing Jesus for his very own burial. You might remember from a few weeks ago that when we were talking about Lazarus, that the crowds were very concerned that Lazarus's body would stink, that on the fourth day the body would begin to decompose. And so what would often happen is that you would anoint the body with these very expensive perfumes so as to overcome the bad smell. And again, it seems very unlikely that Mary knew exactly what she was doing. But Mary is being somewhat prophetic here. that She is anointing Jesus with this gnar. She's actually preparing Jesus for his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. The city that Jesus is headed to, the city where he will soon die. In the context of John, tomorrow, Jesus is going to begin his march towards death. And here is Mary preparing him for that march. Mary does not know everything about Jesus. Mary is certainly going to learn a number of very important things in the next Week, She is going to see Jesus crucified. She is going to see him rise from the grave. And so there is still a lot that Mary needs to learn about Jesus. But even here, even before the events of Holy Week, Mary sees Jesus as being infinitely valuable. And in this moment of Mary seeing the infinite value of Jesus, she is the freest woman in the world. I look at Mary and I think, you're just so free. You don't care what other people think, you're generous, you're reckless in all the right ways. Mary, you are free. Most of us, including myself, we're not free, we live in a state of captivity. We're overly concerned about what people think of us. We want to fit in, we want to be accepted, we want to be moderate. Most of us are held captive by our finances and our possessions. We're not not generous, we never seem to have enough money, we're always checking our bank account, we're worried about when the money is going to run out. We live in captivity, captive to the thoughts of others, captive to the thoughts of our very own hearts. And here is Mary, she is not captive, but she is free. She is free in a way that many of us have never been. And what is the key to Mary's freedom? How do you become free like Mary is here in John 12? True freedom is found by seeing Jesus Christ as being more valuable than anything else. When you see Jesus for all that he is for you, You're gonna be set free in life. When you see that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, John chapter 11. When you see Jesus as the good shepherd, John chapter 10. When you see Jesus as the light of the world, John eight. When you see Jesus as the bread of life, John six. When you see Jesus who was with the word and is God, John one. When you see Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, you will be set free. When you see Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, of the exact same nature as God himself, of the same value, worth, same substance, and yet in mercy Jesus would take on flesh to enter into the suffering of this life to the point of Jesus shedding a tear at the death of his friend Lazarus, to the point of Jesus himself being embalmed like Lazarus and going into his very own grave only after riding into a city on a donkey where in this city he will be tried and convicted as being guilty. When you see Jesus for all that he is and all that he has done for you, you will be set free in life. When you begin to see Jesus as the perfect embodiment of perfect truth and perfect grace, all in one person. And yet, even in his perfection, was sentenced on a hill to die a lonely death amongst thieves and robbers and criminals. When you begin to see Jesus for all that he is for you, you will be set free. When you see Jesus... As being the all-glorious, all-powerful, all-sufficient Savior of not just the world, but of your very own life. When you see Jesus as not just a type of Christ, but as the only Christ, then you will recklessly run to Him in adoration and you'll be set free from all lesser loves in life. Your, Your finances will not bring you down. Social propriety will not bring you down. The judgment of crowds will not even bring you down. If you see Jesus for who he truly is, then nothing else is going to ultimately matter. There's a very well-known book It's written over 200 years ago by a Scottish pastor, professor who is named Thomas Chalmers. The entire book is very good. It'd be well worth You buying, but just the title of the book, it's worth its cost. This little book is titled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, that as you understand what God has done for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as you understand that, you will begin to love God more, and as you love God more, it is going to push out all lesser affections in this life. John Piper was once asked, John Piper was a a pastor in Minneapolis. Somebody asked him a question once, a trick question. If you had access to all of the best scientific machines in the world, what is the very best way to get air out of a test tube? So you might begin to think of how a machine would create a vacuum that would suck the air out. But here's the best answer. To guarantee that air gets out of a test tube, just fill it with water. Because as the test tube is filled with water, the air is going to be pushed out. And so it is with a love for Jesus, that as you understand him, see him, take him in, receive his grace, you're going to love him all the more. And as you love Jesus all the more, all lesser loves are going to be pushed out. So from Chalmers, he writes, We know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our hearts than to keep our hearts in the love of God. Being filled with the love of God is the path to true freedom. Now before we close, let's look real quickly at at the final verse. This is an important verse where Jesus says, The poor you will always have, but you do not always have Me. Now, we know, of course, that Jesus is not saying that we should never care for the poor. Jesus himself has cared for the poor. The example of the early church in Acts cared for the poor. The witness of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation always says that Christianity is concerned with the poor. But what we do see here, and this is what Jesus is saying is that care for the poor is not primary. It's not what is even most important, for as good as a thing that would be. Now, perhaps we might even broaden that statement to say that ministry to other people is not the most important. Reaching college students or sending out missionaries or planting churches, even that is not what is most important. Yes, of course, doing ministry is very good, May Redeemer always be a church that is committed to outward-facing ministry. May that be true. But before we are to do things for Jesus, what we see is that we must first be with Jesus. That Jesus must become our first love like it was here for Mary. And as Jesus becomes your first love, you're going to be set free from lesser loves, meaning that you're actually then freed up to do effective ministry. If you are overly concerned with the approval of people, you don't start by thinking about how to get rid of that sin, you start by running to Jesus. And as you run to Jesus, these lesser affections will be pushed out. If you are constantly anxious about money, if you are not a very generous person, you do not start by focusing on how to become a better steward. Because then you just have different types of affections for money. You start by running to Jesus, being filled with his love. And as you do, lesser loves will be pushed out. As Jesus becomes more and more precious to you, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Just finished... The first round of the first ever Redeemer Presbyterian leadership class. And in this class, one of our our final conversations was talking about the Westminster Standards. And the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? Namely, what what is the point of your life? Why did God make you? Out of all that you're called to do as a mom or dad, as a college student, as as a child, as an employee, out of all the things that you're called to, what is the most important part of your life? The answer is that we are to glorify and enjoy God forever. And here in John chapter 12, we see that Mary is one of the best examples of question and answer one that you are ever going to find. More than money. More than luxury, Mary wants to glorify and enjoy Jesus, more than fitting in with the crowds and following what the society sets to do and how we are supposed to be moderate people. More than all of that. Mary wants to glorify and enjoy Jesus. even more than doing things for Jesus, even more than selling the perfume to care for the poor even more than just doing kingdom-type work. Mary wants to glorify and enjoy the king of the kingdom first. So this wonderful woman, she, she, she takes down her hair. She doesn't care what these men think. These men hold no judgment over her. All she cares about Jesus. So she takes down her hair. She smashes a jar. Perfume that's worth tens of thousands of dollars is poured out. This wonderful woman is going to prepare Jesus for his most important moment. She ministers to Jesus before his death. Mary values the king more than anything else. And when she does, nothing else ultimately matters. Jesus is the Christ. He is infinitely valuable. See Jesus for who he is. Keep looking to him. And as you look to Him, and as you pursue Him, and as you love Him, you'll find that the lesser things of life will slowly fade away. Let's pray. Well, Father, we we recognize that there is a great danger to moralism. We know that the the hero of the Bible, or not the the various characters, we know that Mary was a, a fallen woman, that she needed your grace. And yet this is a wonderful example that you have provided for us. Of a woman that loves you with her whole heart, mind, and soul. A woman that is willing to do anything, to lose everything for the sake of just being with you. And so while we pray against moralism, we do pray for a helpful rebuke. And we pray for a similar kind of understanding for who you are. Jesus, we thank you that you are valuable. We thank you that you are the second person of the Trinity. That you are fully God, yet in love came into Jerusalem to die on a cross for our sins. We thank you for your value. Now give us the kind of faith, the kind of sight, so that we might live to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.